Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, after a holiday break for Martin Luther King Day. Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House spokeshuman, quadruple threat, she was uh, back at the podium yesterday to uh, deal with the ongoing fallout from the handling of classified documents by the big guy, Mr. Ten Percent, President Biden. And um, with the developments over the weekend, she was queried by the D.C. press corps about uh, the statement she made in advance of the revelation on Saturday that there were more documents, classified documents, found at the big guy's compound in in Delaware. Um, and the White House put out a statement su- suggesting that um, all this uh, was just a bunch of hyped Republican outrage. That's really what's happening here. There's no sort of underlying substance. So she was asked about... Uh, that outrage and whether it's limited to Republicans. And, uh, well, here's what she had to say. Well, I'm asking, though, because you've said that you don't want to interfere here and be prudent about the process. But the White House did post a statement saying that Republicans are faking outrage. So to that point, why why shouldn't Americans be upset about documents found in a garage? That's for for the American people to decide, right? That is for you all are, I'm sure, going to talk to many folks out there. Uh, and have that this conversation. But what we do know, right, what we do know from polling that we have seen over and over again, from your coverage, uh, from what we hear, what the president goes out and talk to the, talks to the American people, they also care about the economy, right? They also care about what is the president doing to lower costs, which is why he took hysteric, historic action uh, in making sure that gas prices went down at the gas pump. And we saw that ha- happen by more than a buck 70 cents. And that's the work that the president's going to focus on. You think about the Inflation Reduction Act. That's going to lower lower prescription drug costs, uh, lower uh, medical costs, right? When you think about that, lower energy costs. So that's going to be our focus here. We know that's what the American people truly care about as well, and it is very important for them uh, that we do that work. Quite yeah. the spin, huh, there, Dan? Well, sure. <laughs> why, uh, why would the American people be outraged, um, or why shouldn't they be outraged? Because gas prices are lower. Uh, I'm sure. Of course. That's on point. Um, now we can get back to the substance of the issue at hand, uh, but that's the sort of uh, quality communication product you get from KJP, who's always doing the work, right? Right? Let me be very clear. She's always doing the work, right? I mean, it was Holy another cow. brutal day for her, and I don't know why they don't follow the Trump model where just take a day off or take a few days off if there's nothing to talk about. I mean— they had to have known well, there is something that this was about. going to be front and center. Right. Well, there, then 
I, something... She's making me miss Jen Psaki, I can tell you that. Well, there, there's uh, something else uh, to talk about that wasn't talked about as much, but a, a, again, the, the FBI, we find out now that oh. the FBI declined, yes. declined to search the big guy's Wilmington home, declined to have FBI agents monitor the search, yeah, declined but... to, offered... And declined. Yeah, the DOJ announced that yesterday during the afternoon that they decided against FBI agents and the document search. Oh, okay. Well, that's nice. Well, then, why are you sitting on your hands? So, then on wh- the one hand, on the one hand, at Mar-a-Lago, Trump's lawyers couldn't observe the FBI oh, that's right. pouring through documents. On the other hand, in Wilmington, the FBI is not even interested in watching Biden's lawyers cobble together the documents that are relevant. Jonathan Turley, of course, George Washington University law professor, was on with Hannity last night, and he had uh, this reaction. Uh, the fact is that by November 2nd, they had found highly classified uh, documents. They did not know how many more existed. They did know that these documents likely had been transferred more than once and that they had been out there for probably six years. So in the midst of all of that, According to the Wall Street Journal, uh, they were offered the opportunity to search the Biden residence. Now, why on earth would the FBI not take that opportunity? I mean, what is the possible reason for saying, no, we're really not inclined to do that. You're embarrassing us. You, you go ahead and do it. It's just, it's bizarre. And so not only did they allow uncleared lawyers to look for highly classified information, but those lawyers then continue to find them over 60 days. And the FBI doesn't seem to have done a thing. But the documents themselves, the search for those documents, remained in private counsel's hands. And that works to the advantage of the president. It means that all those initial discoveries, we will have to take the word of counsel of how they were found, the conditions they were found in, whether they were observable. They have no security clearance, Biden's attorneys. Well, that's an addition, too. But uh, the FBI, just not interested. Why? Because... Uh, Oh, yeah, that's your buddy. Why would I turn in my buddy? Why would I snitch on a good friend? Well, it's not even turning in. It's I I don't need to do my job. I trust my buddy to do my job. And according to his senior counsel, he claims that every time his Biden's attorneys come across across something that says top secret or they stop and they immediately close the box up and then hand it over to the DOJ. Yeah. Who's buying that? Well, well, it doesn't matter. The, 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 The larger point is. We have to buy that because the FBI is not interested in doing the work, to borrow a phrase from KJP. Would you like to search the home? No, no, you do it. Let us know what you find. Is that how the FBI is uh, compelled to act in this circumstance where there is the allegations, uh, well, the suggestion at least that there's a possibility of criminal activity, the possibility of a illegal mishandling of classified information per federal statute? And then what of the ability to uh, determine whether or not statements made are accurate representations of what occurred? Because, of course, with the Mar-a-Lago case and Trump, the suggestion from the FBI is that there were false statements made. There was obstruction that was committed. Right. Well, how do we know if 
there whether any such thing like that occurred with respect to Biden. We have no way of knowing because the FBI starts out by taking the Biden team's word for everything. And there's no ability to bump that up against anything that they've observed or any evidence they found because they're waiting for information to be delivered to them and then taking it at face value. And don't forget, maybe they listened to what Biden's person leaked to NBC News that Biden was upset with the, quote, sloppiness of his aides who packed the forms years ago. I mean, there's no visitor's log. Don't forget, sometime during this time, Hunter Biden lived at his dad's house and he charged him $50,000 in rent. So he could have had access to all of that. Could have been, you know, did he have a garage door opener? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. I just feel bad because this is just such hypocrisy. There's one rules for people and there's different rules for different people. Uh, Something else that James Freeman brings up in the journal, too. I mean, just in terms of. Uh, again, to restate something we've been mentioning for the last several days is we're we're picking up this story in the middle. Uh, the questions about the origin of the search for classified documents, whether at the phony think tank or at his home, well, well, what what compelled? What was the impetus for that? We we have no idea. And um, just sort of a you know simple uh, simple commonsensical observation from Freeman. Do most people dispatch lawyers to conduct office moves? So uh, not just who selected the documents to be taken when Joe Biden left the White House, uh, who directed them to be taken to the home, where to put them in the home, when to move them to the phony think tank. uh, And then who dispatched the lawyers to obtain the documents and move them from point A to point B and maybe back from point B to point A, who knows? We don't know. And why would you dispatch lawyers? Because you knew they were sensitive, classified documents, even though, as KJP keeps telling us, as the president has repeatedly said, you know, he's on record on this as if being on record is the end of the discussion. It's not possible that the president could be on the record and make something up. I mean, it's not like he's been doing that for the better part of five decades in public office. But OK, um, he's on record as saying what he's on record saying is I didn't know about it. And I take classified information very seriously and everything happened inadvertently. And on, on advice of counsel, I'm not going to ask about what is contained in those documents. Well, those are material statements that could be challenged based on the answers to some of these predicate questions that we don't have. Simple question coming in on our text line. Why does Biden have the documents and why does he need them? Well, those are the right. questions we've been. Yes. Right. Waiting for. And the media is not going to stop. If, you know, KJP thinks it's going to be any easier today. No, it's not. And Biden has been running away from the media for four days straight now. Um, and, and again, you you had part some of the documents, if indeed they were related to Ukraine, found in his library at home. Well, that he was working. The, the, the assertion is he was working on a book about Ukraine. OK, well, fine. Um, and maybe he even had uh, maybe his access to the documents related to Ukraine that he was using to put together his book. And then he was going to submit to the State Department for, you know, security clearance review. Uh uh-uh. Well, that, but 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 you just said you don't know anything about the documents. 
See, so so which is, right. so which if if that's true and again this is all rumor and reporting because there is a complete you know lack of forthrightness about this and the more KJP talks about how forthright they are the more you know they haven't been but but just you know take this uh, suggestion as a cover story and bump it up against the actual statements that are made and you can't make them wash. Mark and Rochelle, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah, I, if I remember right, when they say that Trump was uncooperative, why did he let them come in and see it and they told him to put an additional lock on? Right. I, I, yeah. I don't get it. Well, what, you know, sorry, anyway. Well, and yeah. why did the FBI Thanks, raid Barron's room and Melania's closet and all of that? And they didn't do anything of the sort at all in Biden. Well, the, well, Biden's attorneys will handle it. I can understand oh. why the FBI wouldn't want to go through Jill Biden's underwear drawer. Oh, it's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So this uh, conference of insufferable galactic asshats in <laughs> Davos, Switzerland, has begun. And uh, that's good, Dan. Yeah, Ugh. yeah, they're uh, there to deal with the poly crisis, as they describe it, while uh, engaging in some polyamory with all the prostitutes that are also attending uh, wow. Davos. Uh, interesting. Yeah, there were a good piece over at Zero Hedge, Dark Side of Davos, revealed as global elite bookings for sex workers soar. And that was before Hunter showed up. Oh, hey, yo. Uh, Hunter's there? No. No, not oh, that. I'm saying know. this is before. Okay. Before. Right. One escort named Liana told the uh, German newspaper Bild that she dresses in business attire to blend into the crowd of elites while at the summit. She said her client is an American who attends the meeting. She charges 700 euros per hour and mm. 2,300 euros for the whole night. Um, I'm sure, you know, that you're talking about a couple of minutes of work and, you know, put up 2,300 euros to cuddle, probably, right? Well, yeah, uh, just to talk about feelings. I mean, if I, I assume, Let's you know. Let's talk climate change. Oh, but, you know, and and again, I mean, just, and I say that because, of course, the they're so exhausted oh, from right. the business of saving the planet. They uh, need a stress release, Dan, and they're willing to pay for it. Our very own uh, climate czar. Uh, John Kerry, hey, why the long face? Uh, because of the climate change, that's why. Uh, he uh, kicked it off by, I mean. By he taking just, his private jet there, I'm sure. Oh, he's just pinching himself. Why? He can't believe he's part of this august group that's here to save the planet. And he, he is. And when you stop and think about it, it's pretty extraordinary that we, 
select group of human beings because of whatever touched us at some point in our lives are able to sit in a room and come together and um, actually talk about saving the planet. I mean, it's so almost extraterrestrial to think about, quote, saving the planet. And if you said that to most people, most people, they think you're just a crazy tree-hugging, lefty, liberal, you know, do-gooder, whatever, and, and there's no relationship. But really, that's where we are. Well, I can't believe it. We're actually doing it. We're actually when can I touch myself? Planet. Oh, my God. And where? It's exciting, isn't it? Uh, I'm proud to have America's uh, leadership there, aren't you? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro, text line. And, of course, you can talk about a select group of people that have gathered to save the planet by speechifying to one another without including a former CNN magic cue ball, Brian Stelter. Oh, my God. The, the king of misinformation. Select- and remember he fell hook, line, and sinker for the Jesse Smollett case? Didn't question it. Oh, this is an atrocity. Select group of people that are there to save the planet. And one of the things they have to save the planet from, disinformation. Yeah. And uh, so you bring in some, you know, off-the-shelf Democrat socialists like Seth Moulton from uh, Massachusetts. And and you bring in uh, this uh, European Commission VP for... Transparency and values. Just to touch Orwellian. Uh, We'll get to her in a second. And you bring in, of course, uh, the editor-in-chief or publisher, I guess now, uh, A.B. Sulzberger. The the torch has been handed. uh, Talking about uh, the threat that uh, misinformation poses for, you know, saving the planet. Talk from the newsroom and the the news publishing perspective, and then we'll work our way toward uh, some of the uh, political uh, parts of the conversation. Uh, How does this discussion of disinformation relate to everything else happening here today in Davos? Um, Well, first, uh, thanks for having me as as part of this conversation. Thank you. As you can imagine, this is something I really care deeply about. So I I think if you look at at, um, this question of disinformation, I think it maps basically to every other major challenge that we are grappling with as a society, and particularly the most existential among them. So disinformation and and the broader set of misinformation, conspiracy, propaganda, clickbait, you know, the the broader um, mix of bad information that's corrupting the information ecosystem, what it attacks is trust. And once you see trust decline... Uh, what you then see um, is uh, societies start to fracture. And so you see people fracture along tribal lines, and, um, and, uh, and you know, that immediately undermines pluralism. Mm-hmm. And you know, the undermining of pluralism is probably the most dangerous thing that can happen to a democracy. So I really I think if, if, you know, if you're spending this week thinking about the health of democracies and democratic erosion, I think it's really important to work your way back up to where this starts. It's one of the smartest people on the planet, he would have you believe. These are the select group of people who were touched by something or someone, and now they have convened to save the planet, and they just can't believe it. And those are the kinds of riffs that you hear from these pseudo-intellectuals like A.B. Salzberger. First of all, 
just a point of order. I mean, yeah. there would be never be anything like this and that this confab because it's just one big circle jerk. And I mean that literally, according to the prostitutes there. Uh, the idea that um, people start to consume only content that reinforces their view. I don't think that's a good thing. However, it does not necessarily logically follow that it undermines peaceful pluralism. Because I don't want to read the New York Times doesn't mean that I'm an insurrectionist, which is what A.B. Salzberger seems to be indicating. And if you don't think that's what he was indicating, then let me follow up with a little bit more A.B. Salzberger, where he answers the question, where does this all start? And you'll be surprised to learn it all starts with Trump. He doesn't use Trump's name, but he used Trump's, uh, he used Trump's uh, verbiage. Term fake news and then disinformation, it was popularized six years ago at this point. Where are we today versus then? What do you mean, where are we today versus then? So this was a, a, a hot, popular topic. Yeah. There was an awakening about it. The social networks felt pressure. But now where are we? And the same question for Jeannie, but where, where are we today? Uh, oh, I see. Yeah, it's a great, uh, you know, and, and to, to be clear, actually, terms like fake news and enemies of the people have been popularized cyclically in society mm. and in, in some of the most, you know, um, you know, repressive and dangerous moments, you know, Nazi Germany, Stalinist Russia, right? Um, so, um, so I think anytime we're hearing language like that applied to, you know, a free press, um, you know, or, or more broadly free expression, I think, I think we should be, um, really worried. Look, I, yeah, you know, um, fake news, enemy of the people, those are the kind of phrases that are, you've been used in the most villainous regimes in world history, Stalinist Russia, Nazi Germany, the Trump administration in no particular order. No order. Uh huh. That's where it all started. And to criticize the New York Times or the allied members of that echo chamber is to is to embolden misinformation, which then makes people retreat to their tribes, which undermines peaceful pluralism, which is a threat to our democracy. That's the uh, deep thinking that you get at a place like Davos when those who've been touched by something or someone get together to save the world. Isn't it impressive? Yeah, one person, the big guy, another big guy, our big guy here in Illinois. Oh, yeah, he's had a a profound announcement yesterday. We passed a Climate and Equitable Jobs Act for the state of Illinois, which is significantly increasing uh, our uh, focus on clean energy, for, we're actually going to be uh, fossil-free by 2050 wow. in the state of Illinois. Yeah, oh, we are? Okay. Fossil-free by 2050. Uh, okay. It, it's, it's, this is not the time for the, the JV team. Go, go sit down. We're talking about threats to the global the order. We're talking about saving the planet. And that begins with, uh, you know, the enlightened journalist class. European Commission... Vice President for Values and Transparency, Vera Jarova, who's a Czech. She was part of this panel with Salzberger that was dutifully uh, mediated by the former CNN Magic Cue Ball. And uh, 
this is what she had to say about the European Commission's approach to what what was what were those phrases that Salzburg used? Threatening, Threatening free expression. Well, you can they're all for free expression right up until you say something that they deem to be hateful. And then free expression's out the window. And uh, Vera Jarova of the European Commission wants uh, us to know in America that that what they do or what they're doing over there, where there are not First Amendment protections, is coming here. Well, we need the people who understand the language and the case law in the country, mm. because what qualifies as hate, hate speech, as illegal hate speech, which you will have soon also in the U.S. I think that um, we we have strong. What qualifies as hate speech, in our view, needs to be regulated, which you will have soon in the U.S., she thinks. Uh, by the way, uh, since she's from Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic, um, I would submit that Václav Havel is spinning in his grave listening to his countrymen say things like that in addition to what she actually does as part of this, you know, I, this ghastly group. Oh, and by the way, just with respect to these deep thinkers, a little bit more here. This elite group, yes. That's the, that's been touched to save the planet. Uh-huh. Yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy here. Um, this was fun. Uh, Jim Garrity caught this over at National Review. World Economic Forum official Paul Smike trying to explain why the Russian government is beyond the pale for this year's conference, but the Chinese government isn't. He said, one person's definition of a bad guy is another person's definition of a good guy. So I'm not describing the nation that way. I'm just saying that depending on what your perspective is, you can agree and disagree with how another country, what its policies are, and so on. It's a fine line. Wow. That is a dizzying formulation of first principles, isn't it? Funny. Uh, about that fine line. In 2013, World Economic Forum organizers hailed the participation of Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev as a, quote, national leader who understood global responsibilities. And a year later, Russian tanks were rolling into Crimea, seizing it from Ukraine. You know, they, they, they really know what's going on. They really got their finger on the pulse. They're not being manipulated, these... Uh, no, members of the Illuminati by dictators like Xi or Putin. And, and what, I, I what just, a joke they are. I know. And that FBI director, Christopher Wray, was speaking at the World Economic Forum. I mean, shouldn't he be raiding Joe Biden's house or offices instead of being in Davos, Switzerland? What the heck is he doing there? Uh, speaking of um, news coverage, yes. Uh, Rebel News' Avi Yamini, he was there. Uh, he's, uh, I guess, the Australian Bureau of Rebel News. So he uh, made his way to Davos, and um, he wanted to ask CNBC's international managing editor, Patrick Allen, why he was there. Oh. And listen to how this exchange went when the cameras get turned on the people usually turning the cameras. Hey, Dawn, so can I ask you what CNBC is doing here? You can't, I can't ask you? No. You can't. I'm glad you didn't put a camera in my face, thank you. Really? Oh. But you're here as an invited guest and you're an editor for CNBC. Don't you think that's a bit of a conflict of interest? I'd like you to go away. I haven't, I haven't agreed to an interview. If you're doorstepping me, 
Don't touch the mic. Don't, well, you're meant to speak. To, you're meant to be speaking truth to power. Are you here just to take your marching orders? Is that what you're here for? Do you want to go away? Not really. I'm here to do what you should be doing. Yeah. Please take this out of my mouth. I'm going to have you escorted off for security. All right. Do that. There you go. CNBC. Their job is supposed to be doing what he's complaining I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's funny, uh, first of all, that, right, uh, Pam Zekman running down, I always picture Pam Zekman running down the street trying to get uh, some target of her, an investigative report on camera when the cameras are turned on those who control the cameras and how they react. Because if there was nothing uh, particularly problematic afoot, why wouldn't uh, Mr. Allen, the international managing editor of CNBC, just say, well, we have uh, uh, financial titans sure. and world leaders here, and so we're here to cover this and what they say. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. And walk away, and it's, he's on public property. He can shove a camera in his face if he wants to. Well, I know, but, but why don't you just answer the question? I, know. I don't know why he got all squirrely right. like that. Just say, you know, we're a financial show, and financial leaders are here, and we're interviewing them. Yeah, maybe, maybe... Mm. Maybe there's something jumpy, else. Huh? Isn't he a little jumpy there? Uh, Frank Arlington Heights, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Cooperation in a fragmented south. <laughs> that, Dan and Amy, is the theme of our conference here in Davos. This is Klaus Schwab, and I'm calling to dispel any misinformation you might be spewing out on your show. Do you have any questions for us directly? What did you think of... Uh, what uh, A.B. Salzberger had to say, what the panel on misinformation offered, Mr. Schwab. I think we need to master the future. That is what I think we are planning on doing here. Your governor of Illinois, Governor J.B. Pritzker, is here. and He is looking out for your state in the future. Last year, it was Governor Holcomb from Indiana. We are colonizing the Midwest. <laughs> that is our future. Thanks for the call, Frank Klaus Schwab. Very good. Very hey, good, you know, Frank. Um, you, know, you, you know, by the way, um, 50 years ago, there was a different set of real intellectuals who met in the Alps, and uh, that was Friedrich von Hayek, and yeah. I believe Ludwig von Mises was there. It was called the Mont Pelerin Society. Yeah, and their that's solution, right. Their, their solution for saving the world was freedom, not what yeah. these guys are doing. Well, that's exactly right. Good, good contrast. Thanks for Silence the call, Frank. Silence and hate speech is their thing. You and know, who determines as, what's hate speech? As many people have observed, but it's uh, it bears repeating. You know, do, do you ever get the feeling, you ever pick up the vibe from all these people that, you know, the planet would be a wonderful place if it weren't for me and you and people who aren't them? Or to the extent that uh, we're allowed to exist, you know, you, you better follow the program. Otherwise, we may have to, Reduce your carbon footprint to zero. John in Wakanda, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Dan and Amy, good morning. Yeah, Frank is great, isn't he? How about that clip? Uh, you want to go away? Not really. <laughs> anyway, Pritzker. Pritzker's going to be looked over for president, isn't he? He's probably told his wife, hey, honey, did I do enough this time? It's passed the safety act and assault weapons ban. He thinks he's been looked over. And as we recall from those Bogoyevich tapes, 
whenever somebody's like over him and he wants to get a jab, he's just fawning, giggling. He's just a suck up. And that's what he's doing there. They're looking him over like a prize hog at the state fair. That's exactly you know, he right. He's getting perfect, over for president. Per- perfect simile. Looking him over like a prize hog at the state fair. That's exactly what they're doing. Thanks for the call, John. Um, uh, by the way, speaking of misinformation and uh, yes. it coming to a, a country near you, like the one you're currently residing in, the uh, Centers for Control, or Centers for Disease Control, depending on your perspective, pledge a million dollars for the development of a public health tool to predict the virality of vaccine uh. misinformation narratives. Uh, no. So, so the so after oh. their takeaway for the, the last three years and um, what they said and what they did, and I know Rochelle Walensky is doing a deep dive on this, and they're very reflective, is to invest in predicting the virality of vaccine misinformation, as they term it. You know, misinformation meaning disagreement, so that they can you know nip the pronouncements from a Martin Kaldorf or a Jay Bhattacharya in the bud faster than they did the last three years. Stop the flow of information that isn't theirs or that isn't approved by them. That's where the CDC is making an investment. That's what they learned from the last three years. Uh huh. Right. Tom in Deer Park. Yeah, good morning. You know, Dan, there's nothing new under the sun. And this crew has been going on. This stuff preceded MAGA. It preceded the right-wing wave across the planet. So you know I'm not MAGA, but with this sort of stuff, there's no middle that can combat this. It's going to get a backlash and a severe one. And that, that's my opinion, what we're seeing here in the U.S. This stuff preceded, preceded MAGA. And the, the right-wing wave across South America and Eastern Europe, people are the one that beget that stuff. Not the people living in the Midwest trying to trying to heat their house and cook their dinner. Thanks for the call, Tom. It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer.
Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. The medical community, medical professionals, and educators conspiring with one another. We saw a lot of that during COVID. We still see it, don't we? Oh, Didn't yeah. Uh-huh. Your Northwestern team, by the way, is not playing. They are canceling or postponing their game against Iowa today because a few players have COVID. Uh, that that that's on the Iowa side, isn't that supposed to take place in Iowa City? Yeah, but Northwestern canceled the game because somebody has COVID, and then they tested the whole team. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's ridiculous to keep this going. If somebody had the flu on their team, they wouldn't cancel the game. I say Northwestern should forfeit and suck it up. Well, um, we'll talk more about COVID, particularly because yeah, later in the show we have uh, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson on. Ooh, That'll be an interesting conversation. He's a big proponent of vax mandates. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, but uh, the medical profession and docs conspiring with one another to cut parents out. That's the key piece to cut parents out of decision making as it pertains to their children. So just consider that concept. And if you believe that presents a real threat to you and your family. And then uh, we have another example of where this business of gender ideology is going. All these employees of children's hospitals across the nation that we've brought you over the last year or so. We've got another one. Allison Simpson is a community navigator for Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. And uh, this is a riff that she presented recently on the prospect of live body part transplants in furtherance of reorganizing the private parts of boys and girls. One area that had not been looked at before in any serious way was, could the donors be live donors? Because in the original study, it was, the conclusion was that they would have to be cadaver-based donors or, or um, from individuals who were no longer alive, right? So live donation has been something the community has talked about for decades. It was really seen as magical thinking um, for a tra- th- this would be a live donation from a, a person who was assigned female at birth but identified as a transgender man. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, you know, I have these parts. I don't want them. You want them. You need them. So what if I gave them to you? Mm. How would that work? Oh, and apparently, based on their research, this is actually viable. Anecdotally, mm. many, but not all, transgender women, especially those who transition younger in life, have expressed an interest in having children in a way that is congruent for their own bodies. But it was still surprising to see the data. Um, It was a fairly large study as transgender studies go, 182 transgender women, 60% of which were aged in the ideal 20 to 29 age range, and most had no children. 94% uh, indicated they had a desire for children. Most of them reacted very favorably, something like 90 to 80% in favor of various aspects of 
having a uh, vaginal transplant, mm. having a uterine transplant, and in, in the UTX, this would all be part of the same transplant. Um, the tissue would be preserved from the uh, parts of the vagina all the way to the uterus. Um, having menstruation, experiencing gestation and carrying a life inside them. And overall, these results suggested that most transgender women would choose to have female physiological experiences, such as menstruation, gestation, as well as potentially having a physiologically functioning transplanted vagina. I think I might get ill. Um, so, right. Um, you don't like your PP, and I don't like my PP, so let's swap PPs. Let's Lorena Bobbit it and exchange. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. We're all Mr. Potato Head now. Taking a woman's uterus and putting it into a biological trans male? Well, I, mean, I, you I don't know, even I guess, know the I guess viability the, of that. Well, the butt babies aren't just aren't enough. <laughs> Which come in three colors, by the way. Get your butt baby now. Uh-huh. You know, you drop a plastic baby doll out of your butt to 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 mimic childbirth. <laughs> also, you can uh, stuff tomato paste up your Yahoo, and you can uh, mimic menstruation. It's got to be frozen because it, you know. Oh, you don't have to tell me. Um, so you're taking wombs from perfectly healthy young women and transplanting them into men. That's yeah. our new future. That's what they're focusing on. Not well, a cure well, for cancer, or Alzheimer's, or Parkinson's. Let's focus on this. Well, you can do more things. Uh, you can walk and chew gum at the same okay. time. You can do more than one thing at one time. But, um, but yeah, this is exciting because at, at first they didn't think that, as you heard from Allison Simpson, you know, she's a community navigator for Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, serious person, part of the public health community. And at first they didn't think it was viable, it was magical thinking. But now uh, there's a study that suggests it is possible for us to start swapping our PPs and that is exciting. Um, related story, uh, five Democrats in Virginia's House of Delegates have introduced a bill that would uh, deny parents the right to their own children's medical records if, quote, the furnishing to or review by the requesting parent of such health records would be reasonably likely to deter the minor from seeking care. Uh-huh. Um, so this with medical professionals and counselors, medical community, public health, and school, cutting, speaking of cutting things out, cutting the parents out of those decisions for their children, minor children. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. Somebody tweeted out. American Life League. The uterus is not an accessory. One swaps out like a handbag. Says you. Um, says them, we need to cater to whatever a person says they want in furtherance of whatever a person says they are. And, you know, on the, on the, the surgery side, you know, make a little bit of money, too. 
Oh, that's right. It's a business. How much are they going to make by 2030 with these transgender surgeries? Oh, it's difficult to say. $5 billion? It's, di- it's difficult to say because it's the explosion that's occurring. Uh, in uh, Davis, California, the uh, uh, Joint Unified School Districts, uh, mm-hmm. School District of Davis, California, there's a report out that 6% of the kids in that school district identify as trans. 6%. Oh, oh come on. Trans or non-binary, they said. I mean that is uh, that is a exponential explosion over a very short period of time, and it's leading some parents at that school district. Oh, parenthetical note: school board elections this April. It's leading some parents in the Davis, California school district to uh, address the issue, uh, like Ali Snyder. Here, my comments are for Davis parents and guardians. I urge you all to have face-to-face meetings with your kids, principals, and teachers to learn how gender is being taught to our students. Do you know that our teachers are asking our kids for their preferred pronouns? Both my 10 and 12-year-old were asked this by multiple teachers on the first day of school. This question is not kind. It is not inclusive. What is kind about forcing our kids to wonder if they may have been born in the wrong body? Gender ideology tells boys who like dresses that maybe they're really meant to be girls. So they should take puberty blockers that stunt them, cross-sex hormones that sterilize them, and surgeries that make them medical patients for life. Nothing about that message is kind. Kindness is simple. Tell boys who like dresses it's okay for boys to like dresses. Inclusivity is simple. Tell those boys they are still included in boyhood. What they like or dislike can't make them more or less of a boy because being a boy is a male human child. This cannot be changed through social pressure, drugs, or surgeries. Of course, the same goes for gender nonconforming girls. Again, I urge you to get curious. Find out exactly what your kids are being taught. Practice kindness and inclusivity by letting kids be kids and remind them no child is born in the wrong body. Um, I second that emotion, particularly with respect to talk to your principal, talk to your kids' teachers. Make sure you actually know what's going on in your school as opposed to just thinking because the stuff you hear on this show couldn't possibly be happening in my school, couldn't possibly be happening in my community. You know, that's the kind of stuff you hear in Pittsburgh or Nashville or Davis, California. But no, not in not in the civilized suburbs of Chicago. Not where my kids go to school. At CPS, students can change their name and gender um, in the electronic database. Uh, They're not required to obtain a court order to do so for a name change or submit medical or psychological documentation to affect these changes or get a parent's permission. So you could go and say, I want to be referred to as he. I know there was a student at Buffalo Grove who was referred to as Dash because that's what they wanted to be called. More importantly than that is you you know – and we've provided this evidence because there are a lot of people paying attention now and a lot of parents, like those, some of those parents you heard in Davis, California, although, as you also heard, not without pushback. We know that the teachers' unions are directing teachers to conspire against parents. If uh, Johnny wants to call 
be called Jody at school, you call him Jody. And if he wants to be called Johnny at home or he has to be called Johnny at home or he doesn't want his parents to know you're calling him Jody at school, then you just cut the parents out of the conversation. That is not in loco parentis. That's just loco. And that's what's happening. Um, By the way, just in terms of this switching of PPs, over half the men who surgically transition experience so much pain they need medical attention. This is a new study out. Vaginoplasty uh uh, results in significant medical complications. 55% of men who pursue the surgery report being in so much pain they need medical attention even a year post-op, according to a study from Women's College Hospital in Ontario, Canada. The study tracked 80 patients and checked in with them three months and five years after the operation. Pain is not the only is the not the only byproduct of genital mutilation. In fact, nearly 43% reported bleeding, 34% reported sexual function concerns, and another third reported uh, well vaginal discharge. Uh, often, patients are not made aware of these side effects before choosing to go forward with the complicated surgeries more complicated than Miss Simpson at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh wants to present it to be. So you could swipe PPs, but this plan also is the transplant of live donors being given to men who are trying to become women. Yeah, well, right. Right. I'm I'm just... Goes both directions. Oh, of course. (laughs) Don in Rolling Meadows. It's got to be very painful. Uh, Right, and, and the physical doesn't cure the mental. Uh, Don Rolling Meadows, you're in Chicago's Morning Answer. These people have a lot in common with the doctors at Auschwitz. They're evil. That's that's all I've got to say. All right, Don, John, Naperville. Yeah, you know what? If we could swap out genders, why can't I just swap out um, races? You know, why can't I be African American and go to San Francisco and get some of that reparation money? Why can't my kids identify as Indian, get high cheekbones? I mean, it worked for uh, Senator Warren. And then also get some of that whole chunk casino money. All right, John. Mark uh, in Rochelle. Yeah, I was just drawing a little parallel with the story of Frankenstein because it's basically a doctors that are obsessed with what they can do and push the, the limits of science or surgery, but it never bodes well for the patient. That's just, right. Yes. Right. The doctor yeah, is the mess. monster. Thanks for the call, yeah, Mark. Got a text message. Conservatives need to push back on this stuff by showcasing the heartache. These surgeries won't create mothers, and it will never work. Well, and, and remember, this is on a continuum. You heard from that parent in Davis, California, about the pronoun usage issue, which uh, I think there's some people that, oh, just, you know, go along. Uh, yeah, you know. Just uh, be affirming. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's uh, one substitute teacher who took to TikTok to celebrate her political activism in the classroom. I think this is Cedar City, Utah. And, of course, libs of TikTok caught her. Just an example. Oh, no. I have my first day as a sub today, and there are many things I'd like to talk about. But today I would like to talk about how I am the political unrest that Cedar City needs. So besides the fact that I dyed my hair purple last night and I have two visible tattoos, I wrote my pronouns as she any up on the board. I was teaching 10th grade 
And I told this to all my classes and it wasn't until the last period where someone was like, what's the second pronoun? And so I explained, I was like, I do she any pronouns. I do go by any pronouns, she, he, they, it, anything, but I am totally okay with you just referring to me as she. And they were kind of confused about it for a minute. And I was like, and you can't misgender me. So don't even think about it. I do respond to all genders. And this one kid just like looks down and goes, IQ 1000, my guy. Iconic, thank you. And I just realized that my hydro flask is in this video and that's my I don't care what the Bible says sticker, which I forgot I left up at the front of the classroom when I was in the back office. Oh, she's celebrating that. Like she's some hero. Heroes work here because we're teachers. Substitute uh, the um, the key phrase, in addition to all her blather about pronouns, I'm the political unrest that Cedar City needs. Cedar City's pretty conservative. Um, I'm the political unrest, but that's how she sees herself as a teacher. Uh, by the way, there, I if I was a, a parent of a kid in at that school that she, where she yeah. subs, I, I'd question her emotional and mental stability too in addition to everything else right. but um to be around uh, kids no your principal your teacher your kids teachers do you really know chuck and delavan <clears throat> i'm i'm a farmer i've i've disemboweled hogs and i've disemboweled a deer and i'm on my way to work and i went and got an omelet with the uh, jardinier sauce on it and some ketchup that he played the day from Pittsburgh. And now it's just sitting here on my council on my dash here. Yeah. Sorry to ruin your breakfast, uh, Chuck. Uh, maybe we'll, you can get back to the disemboweling tomorrow. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Hear about the big stories of the day, then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560. The Answer. They got the beat, the campus beat, the campus beat, yeah, the campus beat. Yeah, this installment, uh, what's going on in higher education at some of the august institutions of said in Illinois, you wonder. Um, Where do you want to start? <laughs> Northwestern, NIU, UIC, you call it. Start with Northwestern. Northwestern. Is they're supposed to be at Iowa playing the Hawkeyes tonight. Yeah, the but uh, somebody has the sniffles, right? I bet you know what I and I tweeted this out. I mean, this is conjecture on my part. I don't know who their leading scorer is, but they're probably sick. So then they tested the whole team. Like, oh, we all have COVID. Have to reschedule. No, that should be a forfeit. Yeah. Because if he had the flu, they would still be required to play the game. Right. Uh, right. I, 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 I doubt that. I doubt that there's that much interest in Northwestern basketball, including by the team. But I'll tell you what. Um, I got an idea for what? Northwestern basketball team. Uh, yeah, it's something that um, I'm borrowing from the uh, PhD, PhD students there. All right. Uh, last week, uh, Northwest University grad students voted overwhelmingly to unionize, joining the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers of America. Okay. Boy. And the acronym I, is? <laughs> uh, I can't wait for uh, the uh, Machine Workers of America to uh, rub shoulders with the Ph.D. students in art history from <laughs> Northwestern. Those are going to be some uh, fun hey. union meetings. 
Um, the uh, graduate workers, uh, they want competitive pay, professional standards, power to address misconduct, comprehensive health care, financial support for international students. and um, Sure, of course. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, this is a, another case. Well, and, and, you know, the football team tried it. Northwestern football team tried to unionize right, two right. years ago. Yeah, I remember PhD grad students have now done it, so maybe the sports team should unionize as well, make Northwestern that much less competitive in the Big Ten with respect to major sports than they already not are, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, PhD students of Northwestern unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, at NIU, Northern Illinois University, uh, they've got uh, faculty training sessions going on, heady stuff. Uh, sessions on topics like white fatigue and decolonization. Yeah. Of course, anti-racism included. The Faculty of Academy of Cultural Competence and Equity, FACE, you're, you know their work. Um, they can... Um, uh, they're sponsoring this uh, week-long uh, professional de- uh, development seminar and, and during the training. And NYU, or excuse me, NIU faculty experts will speak on how to make classrooms and pedagogy more inclusive, with an emphasis on access, equity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, some offerings: resistance, understanding, and rethinking resistance for equity in the classroom. This session will explore concepts of resistance and the various manifestations of resistance that can arise in classrooms like white guilt, white fragility, white fatigue. We'll offer definitions, examples, and case studies to engage in deeper thought and reflection. Finally, recommendations of best practices in addressing resistance will be offered. Can they say resistance anymore? Uh, Is their guest speaker going to be Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, who introduced a, a bill to combat white supremacy? Yeah, got to shut the honkies up. Yeah, yeah no, he definitely. Sheila Jackson Lee, one of the leading lights of Congress, uh, would be very comfortable in academia. Uh, among Sheila Jackson Lee's classic observations, what's my favorite? Probably my favorite, and there are many from which to choose. She's sort of the female version of Hank Johnson, was when she uh, queried NASA officials as to whether or not the Mars rover would take a picture of the flag that uh, Neil Armstrong and the crew planted on Mars when they landed on Mars. Yeah. R- remember? remember? Remember when Neil Armstrong landed on Mars? Right. I was in my mother's belly at the time, but yeah. No, you weren't because he never landed on Mars. He I landed know. on the moon. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sheila Jackson Lee doesn't know. Uh, other uh, titles include The Act of Decoloniz- Decolonizing, Examining classes, Classroom Spaces and Curricula Through a Lens of Justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, deco- a lot of decolonizing going on. Decolonizing gender and sexuality in our teaching and learning contexts. That sounds like a deep dive. Um, also this. When did immigrants become illegal? <laughs> Boy, that is a <laughs> great philosophical question. That is, that is metaphysical. Wow. Because as okay, we know from another uh, leading intellect of the left, AOC, a person can't be illegal. Because she said so. Right. Unless that person it, true. unless that person is in, I don't know, AOC's private home and hadn't been invited. Is that person illegal? Or is a person just 
committed an illegal act. Yeah, uh, real difficult to discern these lines for, you know, the the kids that are preparing or the teachers that are preparing your kids to find great success in the real world. Sure. Okay. So there's NIU and NU, and uh, it's a nice twofer because the value of my degree has now declined again, as it does every time Northwestern is in the news. And the value of my parents' degrees from Northern Illinois has all have also declined simultaneously. It's a family matter. It really nice. is. It's really sweet. Um, all right. What about this uh, UIC faculty strike? Uh, it just breaks my heart because I have so many kids that I coach that go there, and this is their – they had five work stoppages during their time at CPS, and now they go there and they have this. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's a, they're used to it, I guess, but still it's not fair. It's a wonderful uh, continuation. And, by the way, I see on the, the uh, picket line, I see people like uh, Stacey Davis-Gates, the head of mm-hmm. CTU, and uh, some socialist aldermen, and Brandon Johnson, who's a mayoral candidate, and a CTU toady. He's out there. It's wonderful. But you know what one teacher said on Channel 5 yesterday where I laughed out loud? She said, we're doing this for the students. Because oh no no wait he wait for it because they don't have enough um, mental health help so yeah. that's why we're doing this to get more counselors oh okay tootsie sure you are yeah no uh-huh. that's uh, that's among the demands but it's always it's um, for the children there was some honesty uh, where uh, a spokesbeing for the union said you know the main thing is compensation and then there's cool. some other things too so sort of a a uh, fit of honesty there briefly and they've been Um, working without a contract since august oh my uic uh this is a from a report that uh was done uh about six years ago now five and a half years ago by our friend ted dabrowski uh the three most costly pensions in the state university retirement system sirs Mm -hmm. belong to uic retirees as do seven of the top ten Leslie Hevis is a UIC retiree and oral surgeon who earns an annual pension of $547,000 a year. Ooh. Uh, he'll receive nearly $18 million over his lifetime. Oh, my God. You know, based on life expectancy. That's his pension. Hey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't tell me he's double-dipping, too. Um, also, the um, high salaries for administrators... This is now a decade old, this UIC fiscal data from 2014 that was reported in the study Ted did in 2017. The school paid then-Chancellor Paula Allen Mears a base salary of $437,000, which was more than double through additional comp for a total of $887,000. She was the highest executive in the state's public university system in 2014. Oh, by the way, over the past decade, from 2007 to 2017, UIC tuition and fees increased by 74% from uh, about 8500 bucks to about fifteen grand as of 2017. You know, working on getting updated data with this strike ongoing, but I just, just want to give you some perspective. Also, uh, you know, there was this um, uh, report out with respect to uh, – uh, pension funding and um, where the various states are. You know, SERS is one of the five-state pension uh, systems. 
So where are the states? Uh, whose state public sector pensions are the uh, best funded and whose are the worst? Uh, Illinois, on a percentage basis, is the second worst in the country behind, or, excuse me, ahead of only Kentucky. Uh, but the per capita unfunded liabilities, Illinois, by far the most of the nation. Um, this estimate uh, is, this is by the uh, Tax Foundation, I believe. Uh, the, no, excuse me, the uh, Equable Institute. Equable Institute. So there's varying measures on this. You come up with varying numbers. It doesn't really m much matter. But uh, the Equable Institute uh, comes up with uh, unfunded public sector pension liabilities for the pension systems in Illinois, $210 billion. Never be paid. Never. So it's just a matter of when. And I know it doesn't matter to the people in the system now and the people um, – Paying passing attention now because it hasn't happened, and so I won't really pay attention or address anything, uh, despite how dire this is, until something actually bad happens because I want it to be worse before um, I'm compelled to try to make it better. Uh huh. So um, then the UI, University of Illinois system, comes to Springfield and asks for. You know, five hundred, six hundred million dollars a year, while they're violating their land grant. They're violating the the compact as a state land grant university to prioritize in-state families. Um, they, you know, at the University of Illinois level, it's a lot of Chinese nationals that are providing that are getting essentially preferential treatment based on the compact associated with being a state land-grant university. And at places like UIC, you have layers of administrators making uh, a lot of money. You have faculty, especially when you include the pension benefits, making a lot of money. You have tuition skyrocketing. And the university is supposed to come up with more money for a comp that keeps up with inflation – uh, more protection for their more protection in terms of their job security. I guess for non-tenure track, because how much more protection could you provide the tenured professors? And then you know wraparound services. I mean, it's this is like a uh, basically the same approach that uh, the Chicago Teachers Union takes. That's what you're seeing from UIC professors, oh, yeah. which is why you see the state characters show up to join them on the picket line. Um, just to give you an example, too, because it's just a couple years removed from the grad assistance at UIC striking. Remember that? Oh, yeah. yeah. That was in 2019. They struck. I guess they hadn't had time to join the radio and machine workers union like the grad students at NU. Give you an example of one of these people. Jeff Shirky. Uh, he was out and proud supporting the progressive tax amendment that uh, Governor Jelly Belly proposed. The Illinois tax amendment is a chance to win a tangible victory in the class war. More of rich people's wealth would be expropriated and used for public good. At least he used the term expropriated. That's nice. Very Marxist. Very, uh, very comfortable in uh, the Marxist garb is Mr. Shirky of suburban Morton Grove, who's uh, 
serves as the co-president, or at least did at the time, of the UIC Graduate Employees Organization that went on strike demanding a 23% raise at the time. He also called for a general strike of all American workers by the AFL-CIO for myriad miseries that are inflicted upon them. Uh, he, uh, part of the Social Service Workers United Chicago, or I mean, he's part of a, a contributor to the Jacobin Magazine, and he's uh, uh, he's cited by the Social Service Workers United Chicago. Niles West grad, um, who, uh, as of a couple of years ago, lived with his parents in Morton Grove, where he was raised, while he uh, foments the class war down at UIC. He's a history professor at, at UIC. Yeah. This is what you're dealing with. Okay. This is the these are the people shaking you down. Endlessly. And also not imposing the cost on the front end for their comp, imposing a cost on the back end with respect to your kids' tuition. In addition to, as you point out, uh, Amy, the uh work stoppage that negatively impacts their oh. coursework to the extent that the coursework is valuable and interrupting it is in meaningful in any way i don't know they paid for books and a lot of them are paying for their own education and you know it hurts a little different than it does when it was cps strike you know it's interesting um i saw this movie watched this movie the other day speak no evil so like a horror movie thriller it's, it's very okay. good i can't watch horror films so what happened this is, um, and this is a commentary not just on this situation with these universities and these public sector unions, um, but also what we were talking about uh, before Mike Scott's newscast with the whole uh, trans mob and this mutilation of children and the cutting of and medical professionals and educators conspiring to cut parents out of their kids' life decisions. So the movie uh, is uh, this Dutch couple and Danish couple are on vacation in uh, Tuscany, you know, with, with a group, and they meet. And then the Dutch couple invites the Danish couple up to their farmhouse in somewhere in the Netherlands, subsequent to their meet in Tuscany. And um, both have a kid. Okay. Both couples have a kid. And... Um, it's a slow build, but it's really a good movie. If you saw Force Majeure, sort of in this genre of Force Majeure and funny games about um, masculinity, about civility, um, but it's much, I think it's better than either of those movies. Anyway, so uh, they, the couple that's hosting, the Danish couple, so the Dutch couple, they commit like a series of affronts to the sensibilities of the guests, of their guests. Little things that escalate into bigger things. And I won't tell you how it ends, but it's brutal. I mean, it's one of the more brutal endings you're ever going to see in terms of driving the point home. So this is not for kids. But it's, it, it's, it's not it's not um 
it's not like a slasher film or anything like that. So it's not like gore brutal. It's barbaric brutal. Oh, really? And and I don't want to spoil it because it it is a slow build. You really should watch it. But at some point when the Dutch couple has begun their barbaric assault in the denouement of the film on this Danish couple, the guy asks, why are you doing this to us? And the guy who's doing it said, because you let us. Ah. That's what this is. We, you don't stand up to barbarism, and you can't believe what the barbarians are doing. And why are they doing it? Because we're letting them do it. It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I wonder if uh, our fair governor, Spalding, is doing some consulting work on the side, specifically in D.C. Washington, D.C. just uh, did a rewrite of the village's criminal code, if you will. It was uh, vetoed by Muriel Bowser, even though she said she agreed with 95% of it. And uh, the council overrode her veto, I think, with only one. Yeah, it's 11 to 1. Supporter. Um, the um, rewrite of the criminal codes includes eliminating life sentences, gets rid of mandatory minimums for every crime but first-degree murder, the maximum penalty for someone convicted of a violent felony while using a gun to commit more violence would drop from 15 years to four. <laughs> okay. The uh, criminal code rewrite in D.C. decreases punishments for carjackings, home invasion burglaries, robberies, and even homicides, as the example I gave with the committing a violent crime with a gun. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Well, this is so beyond the pale that even the Amazon Post's editorial board wrote an op-ed saying the crime bill could could make the city more dangerous. That is a grand concession, considering the composition of the Washington Post editorial board. That would be like the Tribune or the Sun-Times saying the safety act could make Illinois more dangerous. Hmm. Now, again, crime, violent crime in particular, is concentrated in urban centers around the country, but that doesn't mean it can spread to the suburbs and the exurbs, particularly if you change the incentives you're presenting criminals, as Pritzker's purge law in Illinois did, as we argued, and as we've seen, actually, real-world examples. I mean, Uh, we had a shooting in Des Plaines the other night. We had a shooting in Homewood. A Maryville football player was killed. Well, we've also we also right, and we also know from data in New York with respect to their move to no cash bail what that has meant for New York State, which is more repeat offenders committing more offenses while they're out awaiting trial. 
macro data, not just anecdotal. Mm-hmm. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by uh, John Lott, president of the Crime Prevention Research Center. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Do we have Do we have John? Oh, I'm sorry. We've got John at the bottom of the hour. Okay. Um, all right. Well, anyway, um, so uh, this is uh, all the the predicate for the conversation that we're having as we await the state supreme court's holding in the the safety act. So uh, we have. Um, uh, we expect that decision maybe to come down in March, and it, I suppose since we haven't talked about it since we first came back in the new year, it is worth reminding people that uh, the Safety Act, the Pritzker Purge Law, has not gone into effect, even though it is de facto in effect in Cook County because that's the way that the Lightfoot Fox Preckwinkle Evans power structure has behaved even prior to its passage, and that's only been uh, – Double down upon after its passage as they were some of the only supporters, particularly in the state's attorney, the law enforcement, the judicial side of the purge law. And my concern is that Pritzker gave personal money. I mean, he donated $11 million to Democrats throughout the state of Illinois, but some of that money went to two judges who are on the Illinois Supreme Court that are going to be reviewing this decision. Uh, that's right. And so it'll be very interesting to see on which side of the aisle uh, Roachford and Mary Kay O'Brien, the two justices you're referring to that were supported financially by Pritzker in their candidacies to see how they come down on that issue. Or, I don't know, should they recuse themselves getting a donation from the uh, governor? I, this is <laughs> a, a, the centerpiece of his legislative agenda, something he continues to extol, um, although much more quietly than he did when he signed version 1.0. Something else, too, just in the area of litigation, uh, you heard Mike Scott's report about uh, legal challenges to the the ban on uh, particular rifles that uh, Democrat socialists find to be scary looking. Uh, So those legal challenges. Um, You're hearing even from left-leaning academics, that there's a good chance if this assault weapon ban in Illinois made its way to the high court that would be held to be unconstitutional because, and this is important, the uh, Supreme Court in that important case we discussed last year, they adjudicated the uh, case out of New York, they made it clear that Uh, While there are regulations that could meet constitutional muster, regulations of people's Second Amendment rights that that could meet Second Amendment individual right to protect oneself, that could meet constitutional muster. The standard has to be how the regulation comports with the language of the amendment and the legislative context. It is not because we say this will improve public safety. And the way that this was advanced, the Pritzker Democrat Socialist uh, ban of rifles, some rifles that they find scary looking, the way it was advanced is all based on public safety in direct response to the horrific uh, mass shooting in Highland Park, saying we're going to prevent mass shootings. It's that's a public safety argument. But that's not the standard you have to meet in order to offer a regulation like was just signed into law by Pritzker. So that's something else that uh, we'll be watching as these, and I think there's going to be at least one more 
lawsuit filed against the uh, ban on some rifles that the Democrat socialists find scary looking. Uh, there's going to be one more lawsuit at least filed against that, and uh, we'll see how that winds its way through the courts and if that's uh, something the Supreme Court ultimately might want to take up. Well, I mean, it's it's just interesting in terms of a case law perspective because, of course, ironically, the very basis they provide for passing it, it will have no impact, just as we find from the evidence of the 10-year federal assault weapon ban from 97 to 2006, which is, you know, why the, you didn't even go back to it. Democrat socialists didn't even go back to it at the federal level, even when they had both the legislative and executive branches. But Biden's still talking about that. He's going to do it, Dan. I am going to get assault weapons banned. I did it once. I'm going to do it again. I love my right-wing friends who talk about the tree of liberty is water of the... Yeah, it's, I mean... Well, because assault weapons ban, you know, if you look at public opinion polling, eh, you know, it's positive, especially among the the, the Democrat socialist base. Oh, it's super positive. You feel like you're doing something. I mean, we've gone through these arguments before which is why they keep coming back to it again and again and again and again and again and again. That's all they have. All they have is abortion on demand uh, that they characterize as protecting women's health and assault weapons ban, assault weapon bans, which they characterize as providing for the public safety. And neither policy does either of those things that it says that they say it does. And Pritzker, Governor Pritzker, was just on CNN again talking about how dozens of sheriffs you know, deputies refuse to enforce this new law in Illinois. Yeah. And, you know, here's one of them. Kane County Sheriff, we know him, Ron Hain. We're not going to be putting them in handcuffs and slapping a felony charge on them. Okay. Maybe we'll take it for safekeeping, but uh, we don't want to ruin people's lives over a law that somebody may be confused about. What we will be doing is using this law as another mechanism to charge people with additional crimes who are committing an act of violence or just simply illegally possessing guns. We won't sacrifice safety, um, but so at the end of the day, we have to do what we believe is right for our own communities. And it just yeah, reminds I mean, me of, you know, when of COVID happened. Well, remember when COVID happened and they wanted sheriff's deputies to go out on the boat, on the, on the lake to make sure no more than four people were in a boat and officers and the sheriff's deputies in Lake County said, we're not doing that. So they didn't, but that was, you know, an edict. I don't know if it was a law, but it was an edict saying, you know, you can't have more than two people in a boat. That's a little it's just bit certain, different. Are, certain no, things are ignoring. Well, well, yeah, it's a little bit different when you're talking about um, a constitutional issue. Yeah. Um, and it's also a little bit different when you're making a constitutional argument, like some of the sheriffs, and we've talked about this are saying, it's unconstitutional. I, I decree it unconstitutional, so I'm not going to enforce it. Um, what Hain is doing there is sort of middling the issue, talking about resources and in particular law enforcement uh, judgment calls. That's a bit different. The declaration by a sheriff that it's unconstitutional is outside of that sheriff's lane and thus power. And all it does is invite invite the Democrat socialists to make the law and order argument. It's unhelpful in that way. There are nine states that have assault weapon bans of some sort or another. So this is why it's outside of your lane. This is something for the courts to adjudicate. I believe it to be unconstitutional, just as they believe it to be unconstitutional. That's fine. 
there's a process for that declaration. And the process isn't because some county sheriff says so. That that's not a standard that we can abide. You want to talk about resources and, and of course, just the practicality of it. What am I supposed to do? Send my officers to knock on every home in, uh, in, in, in this case, in Kane County and ask if they've got an assault weapon, ban, uh, assault weapon or a weapon on the ban list that they want to turn over. Of course, that's absurd. That's a that would be a complete uh, misuse of limited police resources, resources, law enforcement judgment calls. That's their lane. Uh, whether something is constitutional or not, not their lane. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. House Speaker uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, had a nice exchange with the D.C. Press Corps in defending his decision to remove the flatulence-affected Eric Honeypot Swalwell from the House Intel Committee. Yeah, oh, the House just... Intel Committee, really? He should not even be anywhere near it. He shouldn't even look at it. Uh, you're uh, just doing this because of uh, politics, because of the removal of Marjorie Taylor Greene by Pelosi from her committees and so on and so forth. Here's what he said. If you got the briefing I got from the FBI, you wouldn't have Swalwell on any committee. <laughs> and you're going to tell me other Democrats couldn't fill that slot? He cannot get a security clearance in the private sector. So would you like to give him a government clearance? You asked me questions about Santos. You asked the questions about Swalwell. Not only was he getting a clearance, he was inside an intel committee. He had more information than the majority of all the members. Did you ever raise that issue? No, which you should have. You're going to tell me there's 200 other Democrats that couldn't fill that slot? But they kept him on it. The only way that they even knew it came forward is when they went to nominate him to the Intel Committee. And then the FBI came and told the leadership then, he's got a problem. And they kept him on. That jeopardized all of us. Uh, Not only was that a good moment, it's nice to see some feistiness from McCarthy, but it also is, uh, should be, uh, and should be reported as such, a rebuke of Nancy Pelosi and what was the House leadership doing keeping Swalwell on that committee or Schiff for that matter. But I digress. Swalwell specifically because he was compromised by a Chinese communist asset. Yeah, he should keep keep raising these issues. These are important issues to raise. So uh, for all the criticism of McCarthy, some of which it's deserved, that was a pretty good moment. It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560. The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, continuing our discussion on guns and public safety and an individual's right to protect themselves. Pleased to be joined by uh, John Lott, president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, former senior advisor for research and stats at the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Policy, author of books, including Gun Control Myths and More Guns, Less Crime. John Law, thanks for joining us again. Well, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. And uh, on a personal note, too, we just want to extend our condolences. I heard of your mom's recent passing, and so we're very sorry to hear about that. Yeah, well, thank you very much. That's very nice of you. Um, You uh, wrote a piece recently about um, violent crime, specifically murders. 
and the concentration of murders in a relatively small number of counties in the country. But it's a small number of counties, but it happens to be the big urban centers where a lot of people live. And the concern, in addition to just the aggregate amount of people being murdered and shot and otherwise violently victimized, is with laws like the Safety Act in Illinois or the rewrite of the criminal code in D.C. that that violent crime that's concentrated in the urban centers could start to become more pronounced in the suburbs. How real is that concern? Well, I mean, right now it's become more and more concentrated in the urban areas, not in the suburbs. Uh, You look uh, in 2014, about 69% of murders were in the uh, 5% of the worst counties. Uh, By 2020, it was 73% of the murders were in the worst uh, counties. And it's not just that you have that, but even within those counties, uh, murders are very heavily concentrated. So, for example, uh, we broke down the data for Los Angeles County uh, by zip code. And 86% of the murders are in 30% of the zip codes. Um, You have about uh, 40% of the zip codes account for 1% of the murders. And the same thing true nationally. If you look, over half the counties in the United States have no murders in any given year. Uh, Another 20% have one murder. So you have... You have 70 percent of the counties in the United States that have either zero or one murder uh, in a year. So it's very heavily concentrated in a small set of counties. And even within those, uh, it's very heavily in in very tiny areas. Well, we we see I mean, certainly we see that in Chicago. So we we know what you're describing to be the case. However, um, just to go back again, as you know, just from being in a as an observer of the passing scene, what do big city, uh, big cities dominated by the left want to do? Socialize their problems to the surrounding suburbs. And that's what right. Chicago has, has always done. And with, a, a, again, a, a rewrite of how uh, law enforcement can respond to the commission of crime, with a rewrite of how judges and prosecutors can adjudicate criminal cases, as we had in Illinois, and apparently as is going on in Washington, D.C., it seems to me that one of the problems that big city leftists are trying to socialize is their crime problem, in part to take the heat off of them, as cynical as that is. I I think that's at play. I don't know how else you describe something like the Safety Act. Right. Well, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, Cook County includes more than just Chicago. Right. And uh, Kim Fox uh, is the district attorney for all of uh, Cook County. So her types of policies apply to the suburbs right around Chicago that's there. But look, uh, you and I are in agreement. It's not rocket science about why you've had the increase in violent crime over the last couple of years. If You have district attorneys who aren't prosecuting criminals. If you have places like Chicago, which in 2020 cut the number of police officers by 400 positions and transferred other officers to make sure that more officers were guarding uh, Mayor Lightfoot and others, politicians in the city. Um, If you have the bail reform uh, that you've had in many places in the country, if you had uh, liberal judges who have released 
in many urban areas, over half, and in some cases, two-thirds of the inmates from prison. Uh, you know, it's not difficult to figure out if you're making it so much less risky for criminals to go and commit crime that you're going to have more crime that's going to be occurring. Uh, there is some evidence. We looked at some evidence in California that indicated that um, what was happening is what you were saying, that you had crime moving out of within a county uh, from a very narrow areas to more kind of affluent areas that were there. Um, but that's pretty much in those counties like Los Angeles County, where you have uh, the district attorney who has the, you know, the same types of rules in terms of what he's deciding to prosecute over the entire county. So we have this new assault weapons ban, obviously, in Illinois that took effect. And our governor is pretty upset that dozens of sheriffs refuse to enforce the new law. What say you? Well, you know, we've had a federal assault weapons ban. We've had state assault weapons ban. There was a federal judge decision in California um, about a year ago that said, look, uh, the experts for the state of California weren't able to provide any evidence that either the federal uh, ban nor any state ban had any impact on any type of violent crime, you know, whether it was mass public shootings or whether it was murders generally. Uh, what the Illinois ban does is it has a list of guns, you know, based on how they look, and then they have features similar to, you know, like bayonet mounts or whatever on the guns um, that are similar to the original uh, federal ban that's there. To go and ban guns based on how they look or these types of cosmetic features makes no sense to me. Uh, you know, Biden at least has talked constantly about banning all semi-automatic guns. But if, if you want to ban, let's say, all semi-automatic rifles, uh, what's the alternative? A manually loaded gun where you have to physically, after you fire a shot, physically put another round in the chamber? That really hurts law-abiding citizens. It makes it very difficult for them to go and defend themselves because if you have to fire multiple shots because you're facing multiple criminals, or if you fire and miss, or if you fire and wound but don't uh, incapacitate the attacker, you may not have the luxury of time to go and manually reload your gun again. You know, and, you know, if you think the notion of somehow banning semi-automatic guns is going to stop criminals from being able to go and get guns, go and look at Mexico. Since 1972, Mexico's had only one gun store in the country. Uh, the most powerful gun that you've been able to legally buy in Mexico since 1972 is a bolt action. So it's not semi-automatic, 22-round short-round short rifle. That's not the gun that the drug gangs are using in Mexico. Uh, and they've many years, not only has their murder rate doubled since they had that, those rules went into effect, but they have a murder rate in many years that's six times higher than the murder rate in the United States. Um, you know, you have to be careful that when you pass rules that you're primarily not going to be disarming and making it difficult for law-abiding citizens to defend themselves relative to criminals. You may take a few guns away from criminals, but if, the, but if it's mainly the law-abiding citizens who turn in their guns or, you know, Connecticut had a similar assault weapons ban in 2013, and now the guns that they grandfathered in, uh, they're, the governor and the attorney general for the state there are pushing to 
say, you know, you register them, kind of what you've registered, setting up a registration system in Illinois. And once people have registered them, then they go and tell them, uh, we're banning them now, and now we know who owns them, and we're going to send the state police in uh, to make sure that your guns are confiscated. Yeah, well, I mean, right. So, I mean, the, 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 what you have to remember um, is that, uh, and, and I understand you know this, is that the, the perspective of these people uh, always pushing these bans and the same kinds of bans is they want to ban guns. I mean, they, they're the same people that had a, supported a handgun ban in cities like Chicago a generation ago. I mean, their, their angle is to ban guns. They can't do it easily because of the Supreme Court decisions and Heller and McDonald. And so they're trying to get through the back door what they can't get through the front door. We just saw actually a federal a judge uh, rebuke the state of New Jersey, Phil Murphy and the gun banners out there for you know, okay, you can, you have a right to carry, but uh, we're going to make it impossible for you to carry anywhere. And the judge says, well, you're you're uh, you're eliminating the right that they have, you know, by other means rather than just a direct ban. And so, um, I, we were talking before uh, you joined us that it, that case in New York last year, the Supreme Court adjudicated, right. is, re- is really an important one that that uh, weighs on. The law that was passed in Illinois, because you can't just make a this a general this is going to improve public safety argument with or without evidence. You have to look at, as the just the majority opinion said, you have to look at the actual black letter language of the Second Amendment and the sort of legislative history to uh, ascertain whether this is a regulation that is legitimate under the Second Amendment or not. So so the days of just saying, oh, I say it's going to improve public safety, and that's the auspices under which we're doing this, that's not good enough to pass constitutional muster. No, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, the New Jersey law, what it did was it said it banned concealed carry in any business, any public establishment, and within 100 feet of them. So that's any business, hotel, restaurant, uh, any school, any church. Uh, and so, you know, you could imagine where are you going to be able to carry in your front yard or something? Right. Uh, and so, um, you know, and the Supreme court decision, I agree, uh, is potentially very important. Look, uh, when I've taught in law schools, one of the things I always joked about is like, you take something like the first amendment where it says Congress shall pass no law. And you kind of ask yourself, what would they have had to write? If they really meant that, would they have to say Congress will never, ever, 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 ever pass a law? <laughs> and, you know, and you finally get to like the eighth ever and you say, OK, they meant it there. But what judges like power and what they like to do is they don't like bright lines. They like to fuzz things up. Uh, and so what they've interpreted as is Congress shall pass no law unless they have a good reason. And we, the judges, get to determine whether or not we think they have a good reason or not. Uh, so that way they can be involved in all sorts of important cases. And what Thomas did uh, in his opinion, he said, look, uh, these balancing tests and these tests where we allow judges to insert their opinion just don't fly. Uh, if it's you look at the writing exactly as you say, you say, see what it says. If they say Congress shall pass no laws, that's what it means. Now, he's only done this with regard to the Second Amendment, my guess is he wants to try to do this with regard to the rest of the Bill of Rights. Um, but uh, the one problem is, is while Thomas had four votes for that, uh, you had Kavanaugh and Roberts, who still like the balancing test stuff. 
yeah. who so liked to be able to fuzz it up. So they didn't have a they need a solid five votes. And I kind of worry that uh, particularly given that the Democrats now control all the lower courts and Biden has actually been getting judges confirmed at a faster rate than Trump did, uh, that, you know, by the end of this term, uh, Democrats will have well over 60 percent of the lower courts uh, controlled, maybe even two thirds. And so um, I think what is happening is that they're going to try to slow walk a lot of these rules, hoping Thomas is 74. Uh, by the beginning of the next presidential administration, he'll be 76. And I think they're hoping that there'll be some change on the Supreme Court and they can reverse uh, uh, these types of rulings. Yeah, that really uh, underlines the importance of the 24 election and and just not that it's not obvious, but uh, it's a good reminder about uh, where we're at with these uh, hard-won victories at the Supreme Court level and uh, how precarious they are. John Lott, president of the Crime Prevention Research Center, former senior advisor for research and stats at the DOJ's Office of Legal Policy, author of books including Gun Control Myths and More Guns, Less Crime. John Lott, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Lots to talk about, so let's get right to it. Neil deGrasse Tyson is a celebrated astrophysicist. He's also the author and executive producer of a new documentary entitled Shot in the Arm. Neil deGrasse Tyson, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, hello. Hello. Uh, hello. Yeah, thanks for having me on this. And good morning. Yes, good morning. So um, the uh, the documentary, um, as I've read the reviews, I haven't had a chance to see it yet. I know it just uh, previewed in the last couple of weeks. Um, give us, a, in part, it, it seems to tackle uh, supposed misinformation associated with COVID, the vaccines, science in general, perhaps. So give us uh, an overview, if you would. Yeah, so it just premiered at the... Uh, the Palm Springs International Film Festival in California. And uh, my association with the project is sort of as an educator. It's the, actually the brainchild of Scott Hamilton Kennedy, who's a, who's a, um, he's, he's an award-winning documentarian. And my affiliation with it was, is as educator, as a science educator, as, as this other hat that I wear, in addition to being an astrophysicist. And this film is all about, uh, exploring the roots of vaccine hesitancy, basically. And uh, I, I think the title of the film is very clever, Shot in the Arm. Um, and it's, it, 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 it's an, it takes us a, I think, a compassionate look at people who are trying to make a decision for themselves, and they're exposed to all manner of claims especially brought to them via the internet. And the, the question is, how do you then decide? And the project was birthed 
at a time when vaccines were on the on the down um, uh, vaccines were on on the drop before COVID, and uh, at, when vaccines were uh, when parents were no longer vaccinating their children in certain pockets across the country, what we saw was that measles came back. Measles was a, a disease that was declared conquered, right, in the year 2000 across the United States. And so there are consequences when people don't vaccine uh, either themselves or, their, or vaccinate either themselves or, or their children. So it's, it's an hour and a half documentary just exploring all the reasons and means and, and, and occasions why people have rejected vaccines. And then it shows why in the total picture and the statistics of, 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 of the likelihood of catching a disease, the, the efficacy of, of vaccines, and it shows why people are not always making decisions that are in their own interest. But how could this be a vaccine if you have to get a shot every three to four months? I mean, we're on number four, number five's right down the pipe. Because chicken yeah, well, pox, you, I mean, you, you get you one vaccine. Surpri- yeah, so you were not surprised. You were not surprised in any given year that there's a new flu vaccine, correct? Right. Right. I mean, it's, that's part, that's a cult. We now, the flu evolves, uh, it mutates annually. And so, yeah, let's get this year's flu vaccine, which has the, 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 um, which is targeted to the emergent virus that we see coming out in regions of the world before it ends up getting to the United States. So it may be that COVID becomes one of these things where there's an annual vaccine to prevent you from getting it. That would not be a weird fact. Uh, So uh, I, I not specifically being a medical expert, although many medical experts are interviewed in this film. So it's their expertise that's being shared with the public. I'm there guiding sort of script points about how to be most effective communicating information. But the, the point is, there's some other diseases where one vaccine like fixed it forever, right? And like polio, for example, sure. And, but not all diseases have the same arc of, of, of evolution in our population. What? And so that's what we're learning. It was a novel virus discovered in 2019. So, so uh, people need to n- recognize that as emergent knowledge comes out, as new strains come, up, come out, um, and we have the power to develop a vaccine for the new strain, yeah, I, I don't know why people were surprised by that. What, what are the um, sources, you know, if, I, I don't know how many you identify in the film, but give us perhaps a couple that are um, at the top of the list, the sources identified as, uh, uh, as, as leading to vaccine hesitancy. Oh, well, there's an entire community out there, and it's not just one person or one, um, but, but there, there's many. I mean, there's, uh, if you look at, if, if you track it back into this, into the, uh, when the vaccines first arrived, and then you saw people rising up on the internet, uh, there were people like Del Bigtree, there was um, uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy, there, there are people who, who basically, either just didn't trust um, the authorities. Uh, let me not call them authorities, because that's, that's the wrong word. Uh, let me say, didn't trust the agencies where their entire goal is to establish what is the efficacy of the vaccines that have been put forth 
by pharma. And uh, it has hundreds, and in some cases, thousands of medical professionals engaged in this, in these trials and in the research. So what you can say to yourself is, I'm, I live in a free country. I'm not going to pay attention to any of that. Well, the, this is what science is all about, attempting to establish what is objectively true in the world. And look at how much other science we completely depend on. All right? You pick up your smartphone every day. Do you know how much science is in your smartphone? And engineering and technology and space uh, with GPS satellites? I mean, science is all around us. And what has happened, curiously, is that people have cherry-picked what they want to believe and what they don't. When you walk onto an airplane, are, are you, 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 you're not saying, well, I don't trust the science, the science, the, the, the planes fly, right? So you're living, well, on average, twice as long as people did 150 years ago by the developments of modern medicine. Right, so, right. but, but, but I, I think there's a chasm between say, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. and Tony Fauci. There's a lot of infectious disease experts, equally credentialed, equally published, that had a variety of opinion about a, multi about, about a multitude of matters under the umbrella COVID. So, you know... That, yeah, that's like, true. Yeah. Right. right? I, I, so, I mean, nice. like, what, what, just let me give you an example, just if, if I could just um, give, give you an example sure, sure, to, sure. to what I'm talking about. So, uh, Dr. Paul Offit, who's a pediatrician, and he was making the rounds. I think he's one of the medical experts featured in your film. Yes, um, he is. Uh-huh. All right. So um, he was a proponent of vaccinations and so forth um, when the vaxes were first uh, made available and, and uh, the push was on. But then in September of last year, he said on CNN that um, he feared the CDC would recommend a new COVID booster for all when, quote, a healthy young person is unlikely to benefit – he said, if there's not clear evidence of benefit, it's not fair to ask people to take a risk, no matter how small the benefit should be clear. So that's a very different position than we were getting from sort of the um, the, 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 the gaggle of CDC uh, experts that are omnipresent on cable news. You know, they're, they're, that's that's uh, there's gradations in terms of if it makes sense for this cohort or that cohort or this specific individual or that specific individual. If a booster is necessary, did you have it? Do you have natural? I mean, there's a lot of subordinate questions that are sort of not addressed by people who just say, you know, continue to get the shots in your arm until we say stop. Yeah. So that's a very important point. And and uh, Paul Offit's uh, uh, commentary there was. Uh, highly insightful regarding so the demographics of of who needs it, who needs it most, the, the, the vaccine, who needs it, who needs it most, what are the risk factors of being hospitalized or of dying. And by the way, those risk factors were became further and further tuned over the month by month as we saw who was getting affected and who was not and who, and who was dying, especially. And so so I think people need to recognize that the moving frontier of science is something that modifies any prior recommendation based on emergent data. And so there's a, there is an issue where the CDC is a large organization, yes, and so sometimes their um, recommendations can be sort of blunt relative to some nuances that someone might invoke. So uh, I, I think a, a big issue here is that transcends even those comments is it's one thing for you to say, I don't want to take the vaccine because I'm not at risk. 
but then you get COVID and then you transmit it to someone who is at risk. And this is the entire problem with infectious diseases because at the end of the day, it's not really about you. It's about protecting it's about public no, Dr. health. Walensky came out and said, if you get vaccinated, you're not going to spread it to anybody else. That was all bull jive. And you know it. So that's why people don't trust science anymore. And why? And when are the experts seriously going to come out and talk about the side effects of the vaccines? Because how, how yeah, long are they so, going to, you know, I mean, we've got myocarditis. We have a number of elite it's athletes all great. just it's all dropping dead. So, so here's a point that is that that gets lost. And that is when the press reports, when anyone is interviewed, the people listening want some kind of certain answer. Mm-hmm. They want an answer with certainty. Okay. Whereas every scientific measurement is in the results of it is a probabilistic statement. Yes. It, uh, uh, sorry. The research paper will report it probabilistically. So what I mean by that, of course, is um, well, I, I, don't, I don't remember the exact number. Was it this protects 90% of all cases? Um, uh, will keep you out of the hospital or keep you from dying? Well, that means 10% it does not protect. And do we fully understand why and how? I, I don't know. But the fact that you can find the exceptions that were consistent with the statistics does not undo the value of the broader statistic that's reported. And so if someone says you're not going to transmit it, they should have never said that, ever, right. because no data would say it's 100% you're not going to transmit it. They could have said you're not. You're less likely to transmit it. And then, the, and what are the percentages? And the press and the public, there seems to be less room to receive this kind of nuanced information. And so everybody's in this cauldron, uh, thinking that a statistical statement is a certainty. And then, when there's an exception to that, then they reject the entire statistical statement. Well, I, I got it. It's a problem. I, communication. I mean, I, I agree that's a problem if that if that were the problem. And I'm not sure I agree that that's the problem. And my point to say is this. No, I, I think what a lot of people, myself included, are looking for is humility, particularly when you, you, you know, you're dealing with a novel coronavirus, as you say, and you don't know how the thing is going to mutate. You're making, a, you know, assumptions based on a very incomplete data that gets a little bit more complete as you go along. And when those assumptions turn out to be less than accurate, there's not... Uh, corrective statement issued, and here's what we know now, and here's what we're still trying to find out. I don't know how many times we had conversations, including with many, many medical experts on this show, where he said, okay, so here's, it, it, just give me the, here's what we know now, and here's what we don't know, what we're trying to figure out, and here's how you should sort of make a risk assessment because we live in a world of trade-offs. That's the adult world. That is exactly But that's not what happened. But that's not what happened. Nope. And, and that is and that's a failure. That's a communication failure. And that and that's unfortunate because then it it undermines people's confidence in a system that is designed to protect us. And so, by the way, the CDC changed their head during covid. Right. And we have a bit of that change over there where the new head of C, of the CDC, uh, I don't want to say confesses that overstates it, but but she admits that the communication channels and the, the, the pace of the communication, what was communicated, how it was communicated, was in deep need of improvement. And so uh, one, of the, one of the problems is scientists generally, um, you know, if they're in a lab and then the, the camera and the microphone rolls. And th- are they thinking how you're going to hear their information? Are they 
Are they, do they know how to shape it so that there's no ambiguity? There's a, there's a, it's a communication problem. Well, and what about this next? Well, 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 and and it's also it's also a problem of trying to stifle communication, as we see now with the Twitter files. And uh, just to use an example, uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who's a former FDA commissioner under Trump and a Pfizer board member, and that's disclosed when he goes on Face the Nation that he's a member of Pfizer board and so on and so forth. But still, and and he is in the business, as uh, we have seen many others in the business of trying to uh, get others to stifle dissenting views from legitimate places. I'm not talking about people that are ideologically anti-vax. I'm talking about, again, equally credentialed scientists and infectious disease experts, but you don't like an opinion that's coming from uh, somebody, and so you run to have that person silenced, whether it's to your friends at a particular network or it's to your friends in social media, and that doesn't inspire a lot of confidence either because what's the immediate reaction? If if you can't deal with that person on the merits, what are you afraid of? What are you trying to hide? Yeah. So part of it is maybe you can't deal with how good a communicator they are. Right. And so, <laughs> I mean, uh, part of the cesspool that is social media is the people who are the loudest or the most charismatic or the most uh, at the biggest followers aren't always the people who are the most right, but they have the following and so that puts things that are correct at risk. But, you're, yeah, but, but I'm not talking about saying, a celebrity. I'm talking about like silencing Martin Kaldorf, who's an epidemiologist at Harvard, for God's sakes. I, I, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, goofballs don't know anything. I'm talking about people. That right, OK, are, no, no, yeah. that, that's fair. That, that, yeah. That's fair. So, uh, by the way, the film um, like COVID is, of course, a big part of the film, but it's it's a much deeper storytelling about the value of vaccines for in, in the role of public health. And so the, the takeaway is not what side were you on and who did you listen to during COVID, although, of course, COVID is a major part of the film. It's, it's, it's a general statement about what is our collective duty? Is that the right word? What is our collective obligation to one another? Yeah, to yeah but never again. In, I mean, this has never happened in the history of our country. The marketing that went on, you know, come We'll come to your house. We'll give you $200 if you get the shot. Free Great America tickets. And, I mean, and then the vaccine mandates. What was your thought on the vaccine mandates? That if you had to get vaccinated, if you wanted to keep your job. And that's still in place in some parts of the country. Yeah, I mean, so, uh, so like I said, you're, you're, if your job involves you interacting with other people and you could spread the virus, then... So the problem, like you said earlier, um, is that if the vaccine meant you would never spread the virus, then you wouldn't need the mandates for, in, in other words, you'd say, well, let me back up. So the risk factors are what people are trying to protect the rest of the population for in the office place or wherever else. So, so I, by the way, we've lived with vaccine mandates with schools. You can't in public schools. You can't in, enroll your kid unless there's some biological um, uh, uh, need, uh, some some biological requirement that if they get vaccinated, that would be a problem for them. So uh, to enroll so your child, we've mandates. all grown up with that, right? You, well, you're vaccinated against polio and and all kinds of things, and so. 
why that would be a problem now, I, I was I, I found because it's the lowest risk group. It's the lowest. Well, risk well there, group. There, there, there's a bigger issue though too, and you and you and I I, I watched a podcast you were on. Um, Recently, uh, I think it was called Valuetainment, where you talked about this a bit, and you're getting to it now. And this is a big philosophical question and a big sort of how a free society should be organized question. So I'm glad you tackled it, which is this idea of a social compact that uh, that we have a duty to one another. And um, and and that's a nice thing to say, and it's a nice thing to do, uh, generally speaking. But something like that, I always ask the question: So, what if any limiting principle is there to that? What if any, you know, you say, well, you, you have to get vaccinated because you have to prevent somebody who is at risk from being infected. Um, not that the vaccine necessarily does that, as we found out. But but even if it did. Well, it does. What, just not 100 percent. Well, just but, to be clear. What, what is the limiting? It does. Not 100 percent. So go on. What, what is the limiting principle to that? So that's a great uh, open conversation. And uh, I think. Again, I, you know, the epidemiologist who would speak from a much more informed posture than I would on this. But I would say whatever are those people who cannot be vaccinated, they need to be protected by those of us who can. And that that is where you get the herd immunity, the herd immunity, which is a little misnamed by my judgment. But the herd immunity is what percentage of the population would need to be vaccinated so that the rest would be protected. And it, that is entirely dependent on how contagious the disease is. So measles, for example, which yeah, is one lethal. of the most contagious, is uh, the, the, the herd immunity has to be up in the mid 90% in order to protect the entire population. Other less contagious diseases, that number drops. That would be a sensible sort of objective way to say, um, if you just have a philosophical objection to uh, vaccines or, or whatever, and uh, then the, the hope or the expectation is that enough other people will get vaccinated so that you'd be protected. That, that, that's, po that's a possible outcome of this. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there, although I, I wish we had more time. Hopefully you'll come back because uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. He is Neil deGrasse well, well, Tyson. It's, it's rolling out this year, and um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not officially released yet, but there's a website, Shot in the Arm uh, Movie. Dot com. And you can see, like I said, the value of the film is I think it's it takes a compassionate look at all the vaccine hesitant cases in the black community where there was the Tuskegee, the, the, the abominable uh, yeah, experiments, uh, right. you know, the Tuskegee study that was an abomination of medical science. So right. uh, it's it takes a very open, concerned look at the whole story. The, the documentary Shot in the Arm, shotinthearmmovie.com. As you just heard, Neil deGrasse Tyson, astrophysicist. He's the author and executive producer of Shot in the Arm, that new documentary. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. You got it. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Today at 3, right before Sean Thompson at 4 on AM560. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. It took a few calls yeah. in reaction to our uh, interview with astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson for his new documentary on uh, 
vaccine hesitancy called shot in the arm, as we were discussing, yeah, getting a lot of feedback. One thing, though, is the more children in Illinois, we just had another child, too, die from the flu rather than COVID. So why aren't we, you know, mandating the flu shot over the COVID shot? Yeah. Uh, or giving fact, certificates in, or free passes to Great America. In fact, since 2020, more people God. aged zero, 0 to 17 have died from pneumonia than from COVID. But, uh, you know, the, the thing about it is, it is interesting. Um, one of the uh, issues I have with him, you know, start with premises. The premise that this social compact that you have to your neighbor um, re- uh, imposes a collect imposes a responsibility on behalf of the collective, and you need to make health decisions with the collective in mind. Right, or and I just kill grandma. And I just disagree with that. And this is a, a an important foundational point. Um, if you start from the premise that DeGrasse Tyson starts from, then some of what he says probably makes sense to you. If you start from the premise that my individual health decisions and the decisions I make for my kids are about what's in my individual best interest health-wise and the individual best interests of my kids health-wise, that's where I start. He doesn't start from that place, and no. it's important to recognize that because it leads you down different paths. The second thing, even though I think he is you know, open-minded to the diversity of viewpoints uh, on a number of issues under the heading COVID, uh, including from medical experts and infectious disease experts that he likes, and he features in this film, like we talked about with Dr. Paul Offit. He has a incredibly benign view of the sort of officially sanctioned expert class as so decreed by the government and the corporate media. And so and you heard him say that when he said, um, you know, it's this is their mission Uh, because their mission sounds altruistic. They are to be given much deference regardless of performance. And he didn't say regardless of performance. But as I said, he took a very benign view of their performance because of their mission and their altru- their stated altruistic motivations in spite of job performance. And I got an issue with that, too. And the last thing is, even though he uh, concurred that we live in a world of trade-offs, um, well, you know, he didn't really address that. The, the, you know, vac- there's vaccine hesitancy on the— well, well, right, risks and trade-offs. Right. Um, so uh, he, addressing vaccine hesitancy, which is, I know, the thrust of his film, and he doesn't have to cover every topic under the sun. It's his film, fine. But vaccine hesitancy, um, what about vaccine hesitancy that is sourced in concern that the risks associated with taking the vaccine are greater than the risks associated with getting COVID or getting COVID again? Um, and if there were no risks, then... I suppose the FDA wouldn't have that VAR site that uh, at least provides some self-reporting of adverse outcomes. Right. Got some a text of, message. Some it's, of my comments. It's called liberty and freedom of choice. Polio shots were an actual vaccine. The jab is not. Well, right. Um, yeah, I get what that person is saying, right? You, right. you know, the, the vaccine prevented the uh, contraction of polio and you're dealing with a mutating virus here, so they're a bit different. Tom in Libertyville, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hi, Dan and Amy. Thank you. You you guys really have summed it up quite well. I'm a scientist, 
I was uh, just a little bit of a background. I was uh, trained and got my PhD at Hopkins and did my postdoc in neuroscience at Stanford. So um, just listening to what Dyson had to say, he might be a good astrophysicist, but he's really conflating herd immunity is properly achieved by natural immunity and also vaccines that actually work as opposed to this one that may work a little. And, um, you know, I, I all I can say is this is a typical Fauci-like approach that I keep hearing in science, and science, unfortunately, is going down the tubes big time with people like Fauci and Dyson that are claiming that they are science, and and I'm I'm very horrified at all at all of this. <clears throat> Thanks for the call, Tom. Appreciate it. Although I wouldn't say I wouldn't put Tyson and Fauci in the same category. Fauci's in a category yeah. unto himself, but um, yeah, I mean Tyson wasn't making those claims. I am science. I mean he was saying his, more or less staying in his lane and sort of leaning on selected scientists as sort of the one of the issues, I think. But I appreciate the call. Joe, Arlington Heights. Good morning. Yeah, my blood was boiling, and, and, and maybe I'll repeat a little bit of what you and others have said. But it, it was just a, a unfair comparison for him to talk about traditional vaccines, which are dead viruses or attenuated viruses, that, I, as I understand it, contain the four parts that, that constitute a virus. Uh, but what he was talking about as if it were a virus is genetic therapy that only stimulates one part of the body's immune system of its three main uh, uh, systems for fighting uh, uh, viruses. So he tried to appeal to how wonderful vaccines for measles and polio are when he was comparing apples and orange groves. And that, that just made me furious. It made me think that he is just, before the data's in, he claims to be a scientist, but the data's not in yet. We're still getting reports that, look, Australia was, one, was, was a locked down, highly vaccinated country, as was Israel. And the data's still coming in from them. The people who have been vaccinated and boosted are having greater likelihoods of disease, but they don't want to address that. It, it, it's premature. The very fact that they're coming out so soon makes it before all the data's in. We didn't go through 10 or 15 years of study through the FDA. We raced this through in six months and believe what pharma said. It, it, it sounds corrupt and it sounds like propaganda. Thanks for the call, Joe. Well, you know, to that point and, and another issue in the vaccine hesitancy is the junk science or politicized science, which is pretty much the same thing um, that has been highlighted throughout the last three years. For example, our friend, Dr. Marty Macari from Johns Hopkins, he tweeted this out June of last year when the FDA was making a blanket recommendation for uh, young children to get vaxxed. He tweeted out, most concerning, the small vaccine study being used by the FDA for babies and young children excluded those who had COVID, yet FDA's blanket recommendation will impose the finding on, findings on 16 million children who had COVID. This is an error of generalization of outcomes research. So that, I mean, that's sort of a basic error, whether that was uh, a honest error or a contrived one. But when you have junk science that is you being used as the basis to make a recommendation or even worse, to impose a mandate, you can understand how that would generate skepticism as well. 
All right. Uh, speaking of data and uh, COVID, uh, from another perspective, an economist one, we're uh, pleased to be joined now by Casey Mulligan. Casey is the economics professor at the University of Chicago. He serves as the chief economist for the White House Council of Advisors in 2018-2019. He's also the author of Your Hired, Untold Successes and Failures of a Populist President. Casey, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, Dan. Hi, Amy. Uh, we won't uh, ask you any technical medical questions, but uh, perhaps a couple of statistical ones. Um, you uh, recently um, co-published an op-ed in the journal, How Deadly Were the COVID Lockdowns, and trying to make um, some assessments so that people can, uh, well, inform the trade-offs that were available and the impacts of the ones we made. So how deadly were they? Well, we we found that um, on an annual basis, so we're well into the third year now, um, 100,000 Americans have been dying from non-COVID causes more than normal. And it's really across a range of causes, uh, traffic, homicide, we know in Chicago, um, drug, alcohol, diabetes, uh, stroke, heart attack. Uh, so a whole range of causes. And what's scary about this is these non-COVID causes are not dropping off. COVID's dropped off for a while now, but the non-COVID causes continue. Um, and, and one thing we're worried about is we're not seeing cancer yet, which is not a surprise because cancer takes a while. When people miss their screening, could be a couple of years until um, they result in a, in a death. Um, so we're worried that cancer deaths are going to be increasing and um, this could easily add up to more deaths than from COVID itself once we're five years into it or so. Well, yeah, this one screening place for breast cancer, just this one little place, it, it's Northwestern on Belmont, 7,000 appointments were canceled. So because of that, now you have a ripple effect. Now you're supposed to get it every year. I can't get one until nine months from now. You know what? I'm supposed to be getting one right now, screening, cancer screenings. So everybody's log jammed because of it. And how soon, I mean, how long, many, how many years do we have to wait until that data comes out? Yeah, that, and that, you know the uh, public health people—they have not been monitoring this, um, and they really should have been. And we, we before the pandemic, we had people with drug addiction, we had people with liver problems, we had people with diabetes. If we're going to do these lockdowns and these very drastic interruption of people's lives, you should have been mo monitoring the vulnerable people and raising a flag. But they didn't actually. They didn't really want to hear what I'm telling you today um, until it's becoming pretty obvious as it is, you know, two and a half years in. And on, on those excess deaths um, from your piece, uh, I, I read that the uh, distribution of the excess deaths is somewhat uniform across aged groups, but that represents a huge increase among the youngest age group. It's, it's quite uh, unusual to have an equal distribution of deaths across age group because death is mainly an older person uh, thing. But right. a bunch of the causes that I mentioned, you know, traffic and uh, homicide are almost exclusively among younger people. And then a lot of middle-aged people um, have diabetes and things like that, and, and it killed them during the uh, these last two, three years in a way that 
what wasn't happening before the pandemic. And and the point here is to say, like, you, you know, um, we do, we don't know exactly uh, what the, the 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 number of people with, say, middle aged people that had diabetes or um, people who skipped cancer screens got cancer. And we don't know how to break that. We, we you know we can't break down those numbers yet. But it's a really a challenge to those who uh, proposed and imposed the lockdowns to say, well, you tell me, you know, these excess deaths, um, other, you know, what what is the 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 uh, overriding variable here the last three years? So if it's not the result of the lockdown policies and the secondary effects of lockdown policies, then you tell me what it is. Yeah, I'm very eager to hear what they have to say. Yeah, right. I think it's fairly obvious. Sweden, we found, um, did did not have these non-COVID deaths. Um, it's a little bit hard to pair, compare across countries, but Sweden is much different than the United States and from the rest of Europe. So in terms of the, and, and the, you, you mean too, the distribution of deaths across age groups is more consistent to uh, you know, pre-COVID times with uh, it being a preponderant of older people uh, and not uniform across, you know, between zero to 30 and and 65 to 90. That's right. And also the causes. Um, the, the causes in Sweden were mainly COVID. You didn't have uh, the, all these extra things uh, killing people, whereas Europeans did. Mm-hmm. And um, when you... Uh, uh, when you think about this analysis, what's what's the next step you would like to take if if there is a next step to take to refine these numbers down more to, to provide even more clarity to this picture? We're always focusing on the latest data because there's no sign that this is stopped. I don't know what to call it except an emergency. And so until it's treated as one, we need to keep raising the flag because it's 100,000 people almost 10,000 people a month, um, that that stream needs to be cut off. Yeah, you, yeah, right. You would think that, that those numbers would get more people's attention. Uh, he is Casey Mulligan. He's professor of economics at the University of Chicago, serves as the chief economist in the White House Council of Economic Advisors in 18 and 19. His book, You're Hired, Untold Successes and Failures of a Populist President. Casey Mulligan, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Bye, Dan. Bye, Amy. Bye-bye. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to 64636 to download the app today. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.